I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, really and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wang. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movie's music and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. Chris, it's been far too long. Yes, we've had a little uh, a little break, I guess, here, a little vacation. <laughs> Unplanned hiatus. Yeah, it's 2020, so you can't really plan <laughs> yeah. for anything anymore. Everything just is what it's going to be. We uh, talked on the last show. We're doing another episode on 1988's They Live, a Carpenter classic, one of the sort of major movies in the Carpenter canon, so that's why we're giving it two episodes. And for those who are just patiently waiting for this episode, we do apologize. We hate to just leave you hanging in the middle. Um, hopefully it gave you a chance to see the movie if there's anyone out there who's a carpenter fan who hasn't gotten to this one yet which i don't know if that person exists but if so gave you a little bit of extra time to check it out and uh, now we're going to go through it on this episode kind of point by point and really get into the details of it last time we talked about the pre-production and we talked about some of the sort of overarching ideas in this movie and i still think we have quite a long way to go with this one yep definitely a two episode banger here and uh you're quote was taken into consideration on the last episode when I was listening back that, um, yeah, this, this movie in a lot of ways is, out of all of his movies, one that I think merits a, a, a larger discussion than most of his other movies. Yeah, I mean, this is a real, like we said the last time, I mean, we're talking about Carpenter just at the the height of his sort of creative freedom as a filmmaker. And this is his second film, again, for Alive Films. And that deal, unfortunately, fell through after this one. But he got to do exactly what he wanted here. And it is his message movie. It's his most political movie. It's in some ways, one of his funniest movies, which we really need to talk about because I just I, I did get a chance to watch it again since the the time that I viewed it for our last episode, and I found myself laughing a lot more this time. I don't know what it maybe it's just the world that we live in. Maybe I'm just so desperate for a laugh that everything's working for me at this point. Sure, everything's funny now. <laughs> right, because if you didn't laugh, you would cry. But no, there's there's some really yeah. great moments of comedy in this film and uh, just lots of stuff that I want to get to that we didn't get to the last time. So yeah, I, I agree. I think we definitely needed to do another one on this one. Chris, what have you been up to in the many, many weeks since we've talked last? I think it's only been like two or three weeks, probably three. But uh, what what is your film viewing, music listening? Where have you been all all my life? Uh, right. It's, I, I guess there's a few things that I could cover. The first thing that comes to mind is I've been going back and doing all the Saw movies. Okay. And I've gotten through the first four at this point. And I'm going to tell you right now, man, have you seen all the Saw movies? I have seen every single Saw movie. And not only have I seen them all, I saw them all in theaters on opening weekend. That's how nerdy I am for that franchise. Saw 3 is the most disturbing movie I've ever... I I cannot watch that movie again. For some reason, that one in particular just really 
uh, was a stressful watch for me. Yeah. That's the um, one with that. There's some surgery in that one that really got to me. There's some uh, like impromptu brain surgery that happens in that movie that is just almost unwatchably gruesome. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm proud to say that, you know, because it's such a complex uh, storyline that with watching them in sequence in a short period of time, I've gotten through the first four and I'm pretty sure I know every freaking thing that's going on. That's um, a lot of content. Yeah. I was very surprised. I mean, I, I love the original. I think two is good. I think three is good, too. It's just a li- even a little bit too brutal for my taste. I was surprised how much I liked Saw 4, which is kind of, in a way, gives you the origin story to Jigsaw's, Jigsaw's character and uh, sort of the genesis of the whole thing. I, I was shocked when 4 was over. I was like, oh, my God, is this my favorite of the four so far? So, yeah, I'm hoping that within the next week or two, I can finish the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I will tell you, having seen them all in theaters, and it's been a while, like, I, I don't know that I've seen, aside from the first maybe two, I don't know if I've seen any of them again, like, a second time, <laughs> but I do remember really liking them up through four, and then five, six, and seven are just not great, and uh, and they really, yeah. I mean, I think they just got to a point where the plot became so convoluted, and the things that they had to sort of go back and fill in about Jigsaw and uh, you know, the Tobin Bell character before he became Jigsaw, John what was his name? He had like, they revealed his real name right? I guess it's been a very long time for me but uh, I definitely did think eventually they, were, they just hit a point where the traps became less creative and the plot just became this mishmash of things where it's like, oh yeah, and he planned this thing and this thing and this thing before he died and it, it became a lot more ridiculous than it needed to be. I will say uh, one of the it's movies... Jo- uh, John Kramer. John sorry Kramer. I, I, was, I yeah, had yeah. such a big brain fart there and I was like, why am I not thinking of this? Well, me too. I consider myself a fan of the series and I couldn't even think of this uh, very important character name but even those later ones they do bring some things back and they bring back some characters shawnee smith who i think is very good in those movies she comes back i believe in one of the later ones one of them was in 3d in the theater so i guess that was sort of fun but this year i mean we've we've kind of lost out on our theatrical movie going experiences this year and one of the things i was looking forward to more than anything else was the chris rock reboot of the saw franchise which kind of came out of nowhere had no idea chris rock was such a big saw fan they released a yep. trailer for it which was fascinating because chris rock is in it and uh, is playing a cop in a saw movie and i just really really wanted to see that i think it was supposed to come out in may and who knows maybe they'll hold on to it for halloween or maybe just leave it till next year but like is it is it called spiral i think it's called spiral yeah it's uh so it doesn't have saw in the title but it is a saw movie and chris rock literally it was just a case of he was a big fan of the series he kind of had the clout in hollywood to make his own movie and he decided let's reboot this franchise so i cannot wait to see what that's well they did jigsaw did you see jigsaw that was uh i guess the eighth Mm -hmm. movie in the franchise and i didn't think it was that bad I thought it was pretty good. A lot of uh, people hated it. Yeah, I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell you what right now. One thing that blew my mind is that, did you know that uh, part two, three, and four are all directed by the same guy? Darren Lynn Bousman. And I, I thought he was great. I mean, I really... You know, 
how burnt out you would be after doing three Saw movies in a row. Well, is, yeah, know. but he was like 22 years old when he made Saw 2. I mean, he was this up-and-coming, oh, wow. really innovative horror filmmaker. Those are the best in the series. I mean, I think two is better than one. And they just sort of hired him out of nowhere. He got this career out of nowhere. And it was never really able to capitalize on it. Like, I've seen some of the other films that he did post-Saw series. Um, he did one with Dayton Callie, who used to be on Sons of Anarchy. I can't remember the name of the movie. It was kind of a haunted house thing and had some cool ideas in it. It was kind of an interesting setup, but definitely not as innovative or as cool as Saw 2. And I'd really like to see him kind of cut loose and do something interesting again. I mean, I thought he was a real talent that that series just plucked out of obscurity. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, I, I should probably watch that entire series again. I mean, maybe when they finally announce an actual release date for Chris Rock's reboot, I'll go back and do the whole series again. I'll tell you, I was able just to, if you want to do it, I part of the reason why I'm doing it is because I was doing one of my, you know, just browsing around on Amazon looking for stuff. And uh, I found like a Blu-ray with the full set it's like eight saw movies and i it, dude it was like 15 dollars or something <laughs> i was just like i just looked at it and i was like i'm just gonna get this you know and uh that's how the whole thing kind of started so yeah, they're all about saw 80 minutes long i mean it's not like a hard watch <laughs> it's not like you have to really commit to a, a saw movie although if you want to follow the plot i guess as much as you have then you definitely do it's pretty good um, I will say just really quickly, I've been playing a video game called Hunt Down, which is a very Super NES style pixel art kind of side scrolling run and gun kind of Contra style game. And the reason I mentioned it is the score for this game. I don't know who the composer is that uh, I apologize for that. I can look it up, but it is so very John Carpenter, like the opening title screen of this game has. I mean, it sounds like a lost John Carpenter track. It's got this very 80s sort of cyberpunk aesthetic to it almost feels a little bit at times like the warriors or escape from new york it kind of has that visual style too and they definitely brought in hmm. the carpenter style synths for it so i haven't had a lot of time to watch movies but i've definitely had some time to play very quick sort of twitchy video games like that and so many of them have that carpenter sort of visual and audio quality to them that i always just like bringing those up on the show Oh, very cool. What about the game you were telling us about last time? Broforce. Have you... Uh... <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I beat the game. I beat Broforce a couple of weeks ago. I did unlock the oh, Snake excellent. Bro skin character. His weapons are interesting. So every character, as I was saying on the earlier episode, they're all based on sort of 80s action movie heroes, and they all have like a main weapon and a special, like a secondary weapon. So the Snake Plissken character has the machine gun, of course, the, the gun that he has in the movie, and then his special weapon weapon is like a decoy that you can like a little holographic decoy thing that you can leave around and the enemies will go after that instead of going after you of course he's got the great snake plissken hair it's a really mm. fun game for uh, for those who appreciate those kinds of movies so that's what i've been up to yeah you know uh, one more thing that i just thought of that i'd like to drop i know we're going a bit long on the intro here but i had to ask you have you seen the movie crawl yet i have the uh, the the crocodile movie I very much enjoyed it, and I got to tell you, as uh, someone who lives down in Florida, <laughs> I, I was I was watching it. Literally, like the most devastating thunderstorm was going on outside my house, like pouring rain, while I was watching it, and it just really kind of set the tone. And uh, I thought it was a really, really good movie, uh, just as far as well, just just entertaining. Yeah. 
I agree. I, like, I remember reading about just what the plot of that movie was. The premise is basically a neighborhood gets flooded in a hurricane. And so you've got crocodiles basically inside people's houses crawling around. Not crocodiles, and... alligators. They are alligators. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Yeah, sorry. I'm not a Floridian like you are. But um, I just, I love that idea, right? Like, it's uh, sort of that jawsy kind of setup. And Alexandra Aha is the director of that, who yes. directed High tension he did the hills have eyes remake he did the very very good i don't know about good but very entertaining piranha remake did you see his piranha movie from about 10 years ago i did not and i and when i was looking at his uh his filmography i was like oh man i forgot he did that he's a very good director yeah he is i mean he was kind of this um he was a gore guy he was kind of new french extremity he came from that school of just sort of extreme graphic french horror filmmaking he's done other stuff since then but i kind of enjoy his horror stuff a lot and if you haven't seen piranha i mean it's definitely a, a lot sillier than crawl crawl is kind of played with a little bit more of a straight face but piranha is just this crazy gore fest it's set on lake havasu i think it's something like that some like party place like that and it's literally just you know hot college kids getting chewed up by piranhas the whole time there's a scene involving a boat motor that's just horrifying it's one of the most extreme things i've seen in uh in a movie like that in a while so definitely check that one out too i am literally taking a note of that right now yep so, all right. Yeah, yeah. Crawl was, um, you know, what was cool about that movie was it really did kind of like I thought it wasn't going to follow through on that premise and they were going to sort of get out of the neighborhood and get out of the house. But no, it is kind of an enclosed space kind of movie. And you've got characters basically swimming through flooded rooms with alligators pursuing them. It's not the most graphic movie, but there's definitely some good gore there and interesting kills. And the special effects are really, really great. Like, I don't know what they spent on it, but I thought it looked really good. So yeah, nice, quick 90 minute, lean mean b-movie kind of film i liked it a lot yep i watched it twice <laughs> oh really <laughs> so yeah. nothing is a lean and mean 90 minute movie for you because you'll watch almost anything <laughs> twice I love that. Oh, uh, thank God I have the time. Yeah. Well, we had the time to watch They Live one more time, so we're going to come back and get into this. I think it's about a 95-minute movie, but still lots of lean, mean, B-movie fun. We'll be right back to talk about it. Some kind of sequels on TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like tattletale. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go! Push I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. All right, we are back to take another look at 1988's They Live, the film that sort of... I, I mean, there's so much that this movie introduced to the world that we're still seeing like all the time nowadays the obey motif that of course shepherd fairy took over those t-shirts were all over the place for the longest time and just some of the uh the design in this movie and some of the ideas in this movie i think were just hugely influential chris i don't know about you but this last time viewing it the movie that stuck in my head a lot was the matrix uh, am i crazy to sort of make the connection between those two i mean this is definitely not the same kind of sci-fi as the matrix but the overall sort of premise of this where we're we're all just basically being manipulated by aliens and the reality that we see is kind of not our reality it almost seems like that was a direct copy from this movie i can to i think that's a totally legitimate comparison to make absolutely 
Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of movies like that, right? I mean, even the Body Snatchers movies and things like that, like, it's this sense that uh, that aliens sort of want to fit in with us and they want us to not know that we're here, right? Like, mm-hmm. those are the two types of alien invasion movies. You've got your Independence Days where they just kind of show up and start blowing shit up. And then you've got <laughs> kind of the more subtle ones like this, like The Matrix, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, all the different versions of that. And, you know, you, you really have to learn that they're here before you can do anything about it. And as we were saying on the last episode, what's interesting about this one is that the invasion happened so long before these characters figure it out, before Nada, the uh, the Rowdy Rowdy Piper character, actually learns what's going on in the world. It's been going on for years. And, and actually, Keith David's character, Frank, kind of asks at one point, how long have they been here? And like, one, it doesn't really matter. And two, there's really no way to know. And I think that's kind of interesting. Like, this is not an alien invasion in progress. This is not the origins of an alien invasion. It's an alien invasion that has just been going on and on and on. Right. They've had us They've had us in submission all this time without anyone knowing. Yeah. And even in the opening scenes of the movie, it's already kind of long since in progress. So I think we, we just start from square one, start from the beginning here. We talked a little bit on the last episode about the terrific opening shot in this film. Mm. I love the title, by the way. So we get the title card. It's in this kind of graffiti font. And then that dissolves into a, a railroad bridge with graffiti on it. And they live is right there, spray painted on it. And that's where we meet Nada. We meet Roddy Roddy Piper's character, who is just homeless, looking for work, kind of riding the rails. I guess we assume that he just got off a train. He arrives in Los Angeles, and that's the opening scenes of the movie. Like, So we don't see anything that's remotely sci-fi or horror or action-like for quite a while in this movie. I mean, it takes almost a good half hour before we really get into the meat of what this is. And it starts out, as we were saying the last time, is just this kind of... Of social drama about downtrodden folks just homeless and looking for work and trying to make their way in the world. Yeah, I feel really bad for Nada. Like right off the bat, they develop some sympathy for him. You know, like he goes to that job agency looking for work and there's nothing available. Yeah, I like how this is shot in Los Angeles. And I, I during the uh, Blu-ray commentary, I thought that was really cool that uh, Carpenter mentioned that he had hired some homeless people, like some like homeless people you see in this movie, he hired as extras, uh, you know, to give them like a paycheck for the day or whatever, which I thought was was pretty cool. But yeah, right off the bat, we kind of you know can see that this this not a guy is kind of down and out on his luck. Yeah, well, what's interesting about this film is it does a really good job of contrasting his world and kind of the upper class business people, uh, the the world of capitalism, I guess, that this film eventually comes to really harshly criticize. Like we get in those opening moments, some shots of like skyscrapers and kind of where the other half lives. And he's sort of making his way through that world. But we see that he's not part of that world. That scene in the uh, employment office, I think, is really interesting just because thinking about that in 2020 like how archaic that all is like didn't that feel really ancient the idea that yeah. you just go to this place and sit down and talk to someone and there's little paper things tacked on the wall like i guess with job postings on them yeah that's definitely not a reality nowadays it's a good that's a good point Reminds but he says right the sucker the... proxy there's a scene like that at the beginning of that movie with uh that one had like a board where like things flip up on the board this was just like a bulletin board almost just things tacked to the wall Ooh, nick dropping the hud sucker proxy i on the love show. that freaking movie wow yeah so i mean basically he 
comes upon a construction site and um, just basically asks if, if he can work. He has his own tools, and obviously he, you know, <laughs> needs to eat and needs to make some money, and he seems like a, like a pretty hard worker. And I guess at that point, this is when he meets up with uh, Frank. The great Keith David in a... a the great Keith David, yes. In a yes. pink tank top that, like, I don't think anybody else in the movies could possibly pull off, but it looks pretty good on Keith David. Yeah, and that's kind of... That's, you know, it, at one point, it's like when they're done with work for the day, not just kind of hanging around and you know, the the supervisor of the site's like, oh, you can't stay here. And that is when uh, he's informed by Frank, again, played by Keith David, that, hey, listen, there's a place I know where we can, like, get a hot meal and a shower if you want to come. And uh, Nada doesn't really accept, but he just sort of, sort of, like, starts, like, following him where he's going. Yeah, there's some great banter in that scene where he's just like, I don't like people following me unless I know why or, or something like that, unless I know what they're doing. And Nada says something like, well, I don't follow people unless I know where they're going. I mean, they like yeah. the relationship between them, I think, is one of the best things in the movie. And it's developed really well where they're both kind of wary of each other because they're both guys who are just trying to get by and kind of, you know, they don't trust everybody and they sort of know not to trust everybody. So although they both seem to be on the level they are kind of at arm's length a little bit throughout uh, almost the entire movie i mean they do develop mm -hmm. i think what what becomes a closer friendship but i sort of like you know they're just they're both really macho also like they're both tough guys in some sense i think nada is a little bit more of a soft-spoken like a gentle giant type but frank is kind of a badass as we said on the last episode he's sort of an everyman badass and just knows how to navigate this world i think uh much better than nada does and so he brings him to this homeless encampment where things are pretty good there right i mean for what it is it seems like everyone is eating well and, and we get shots of you know there's a lady like reading to a kid and and children playing there i mean it doesn't seem like the most miserable like it's it's not a horrible horrible place to be if you have to be on the street i mean they seem to have developed a pretty good community for themselves there and that is where we meet peter jason's character gilbert who kind of runs the place i guess like i don't know how to describe him in terms of this like camp but he also has something else going on across the street <laughs> at the church that becomes sort of this little mystery that needs to be solved in the first act of this movie yeah i love it too because we get a little bit more character development here between frank and nada where they're where we get to hear their kind of world views yeah and we see that nada is a, a bit more optimistic and you know believes in the american dream and one day he's just going to make it as long as he keeps working hard and uh Keith David is a little bit more of a realist and a little bit more pessimistic about things and discusses how, you know, the way the system is set, it's do your best, but I'm always going to try to do better than you. Yeah, There's sure. always somebody, you know, competing with you or trying to, to best you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the dialogue here is, is definitely a little bit on the nose because they are sort of talking about that competitive American way of life. That shot, right? The, um, when they're, it's a two shot and they're ha having this conversation where Nada basically comes out and says, I believe in America. Like that is a literal line in the movie. And you've got those skyscrapers kind of in soft focus in the background there. So we're seeing this sort of gleaming American city. We see 
see almost like what he's going for, this sort of American dream almost kind of behind him there. And yeah, I mean, Frank is definitely more of a realist. He comes from Detroit. He says he has a, a wife and a child there, and mm -hmm. he just had to leave Detroit because the steel mills all closed down. So industry kind of collapsed and there was no more work for him. And so we definitely get that sense of, of the haves and have nots in this movie really early on. Um, the other scene I wanted to mention, which uh, happens a little bit before this, I think it's it's just before, just after Nada goes to the employment office, is he's walking through a park and we see Raymond St. Jacques or St. Jacques, his character, who is billed mm -hmm. as the street preacher. And he's giving this sermon about these entities that are in control and you know we think he's just sort of this religious nut job and he's talking about the devil or something like that but really in this opening scene he kind of gives you the entire premise for the movie you just don't really know that that's what it is yet like what he's talking about are these aliens that have taken over American society and are just claiming everything for themselves and and leaving people to rot essentially and that's what he's talking about and then the police show up in that scene to I guess yes detain the preacher and not a kind of like you know i mean we don't get a sense that he's on the run but he just doesn't really want to deal with the cops he doesn't want to be involved at all so he kind of just like turns away really quickly and sneaks out of there before they can question him or talk to him or before they know he's there and it's kind of just an interesting little foreshadowing moment and a little bit of setup of, uh, of who the street preacher is too Yep, we should definitely, I'm glad that you kind of rewound a little bit there and covered that because he obviously becomes very important in the next couple of scenes here. Also probably important to mention that while we're at this uh, at this homeless encampment or whatever you want to call it, we do get the first hacking of the, the television where there's this dude just on there basically saying that there there's signals being used to... Uh, kind of control the population and we notice that they all kind of like touch their heads a little bit when the when the signal gets interrupted um, it, it, because it's giving them a headache yes well that's the um, other thing this homeless encampment has is tv so um, yeah so i was gonna they say they have, have a tv yeah what's interesting and who's though, sitting is there Oh, go go ahead, go ahead. Like this, this broadcast, this hacked broadcast, cuts in, and at first they're just mad that it's interrupting their show, which I think is uh, another interesting little bit of commentary. But yeah, it gets in your head somehow. It gives you like a physical reaction to it, and you know, again, it, it just looks like another sort of kooky, crazy person coming out and talking about aliens and mind control and stuff like that. And they just want to go back and watch TV. Um, what we've seen up to this point a few times. I mean you know, talking about foreshadowing and stuff like that is there's a lot of just TV in this movie, commercials and, and kind of little bits of shows that we see. And like, there's this interview with a lady. There's a scene yes. prior to this where, where Nada is sleeping in an alleyway or, or trying to sleep in an alleyway. And he can see in the open window of somebody who lives nearby. And he's watching the show where this lady's kind of talking about these really superficial things on TV and something about like how she imagines she's on television and has her own show. And like, mm -hmm. that's another kind of American dream, right? Like get 
rich and famous and be glamorous on television and like that's contrasted with these homeless people sleeping in an alleyway i mean as we talked about last time this movie's not subtle at all this movie is not <laughs> going to make you work for what it's getting at this movie is uh, its subtext is kind of right on its sleeve the whole time but i love i mean i don't chris you probably know this better than i do but like all these little snippets of television that we see i don't think most of them are actual television shows i think carpenter or somebody must have gone and shot these little commercials like there's a bit at the beginning it looks like a beer commercial with like these dude bros kind of high-fiving and yes like you know some very patriotic stuff and all of these like little snippets of looks like tv commercials and talk shows and stuff like that and i'm assuming that was all made just for this movie if not then they had somebody like go through the archives and find stuff that was sort of almost a caricature of of what american television is like or was like yeah. in uh, in 1988 yeah i love that the the dude broy thing that you mentioned like <laughs> it just like shows these guys like like i don't know they're like standing in a, in a, in a park together and they're all just like you know, arm in arm and laughing and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, reminds me of like old Budweiser commercials, like stuff you'd see during <laughs> football games when I was a kid. And it is, I mean, there's, yeah. there's this very sort of subtle undercurrent of humor. I mean, it's it's not so over the top that we're kind of laughing at it necessarily, but it does set up the capitalist commentary that goes on in this movie. There's one, I mean, this has to be made for the movie. It's a commercial for press-on nails. And this lady has these very, very long press-on nails and she impales a cube of cheese on like the pinky nail and she eats it like right off of her finger and that's yep. definitely not real but it definitely makes the point yep absolutely i'm, I'm gonna go with um you're probably right i think they they probably custom made a lot of these commercials and clips kind of a uh, fun thing if carpenter did that himself yeah. like it's always fun to just sort of get way out of your comfort zone like he never made tv commercials i don't think um so he he got to sort of emulate that style a little bit unless he just hired somebody else to do it who knows? Um, we see during this first television broadcast, George Buckflower, yes. who is now introduced into the picture. And then this is when, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too quickly here, but or no, I think it's the same scene because we see this, you know, this person on the TV telling everybody about the signals and it's cutting back and forth between that and the preacher that we saw and everything that he's saying on TV, the preacher's like lip syncing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or, it's a really important moment there. Yeah. Right. And there is a church across the way and uh, we get to notice that, you know, Nada is, uh, I just want, I don't want to call him Nada. I want to call him Rowdy Roddy Piper. You can call uh, him Rowdy Roddy Piper he, as long as you use I mean, the Rowdy. Yeah, Cause they never use the name Nada in the movie. So it just feels weird to call him that. I right. guess. I don't know, but he's paying attention to the church and uh, you know, there's definitely <laughs> some activity going on there that we're about to find out about. And this whole, basically this, this operation that he sort of accidentally discovers. I just like, it's not even like he's trying to be nosy really. He just, uh, he's, he knows something is up. Well, right. And I think maybe Frank is part of that, right? Like he kind of, 
Frank kind of gives him this idea early on that you can't really trust anyone and everyone is trying to compete with everyone else. So he comes into this homeless encampment and Gilbert seems to be totally on the up and up. He seems like a really nice guy. And he says, oh, you know, if you've got your own tools, we got these showers coming in. You can work for us and we'll give you a hot meal, whatever. And then he sees everyone kind of sneaking off across the street to this church and it's open. He says, like, you know, yeah. what are you doing at 4 a.m.? And Gilbert kind of brushes it off and says, basically, well, we got to feed everybody. We got to make breakfast or something like that. They let us use our kitchen. So it kind of seems like there's something shady going on. Maybe it's a drug ring or something that's being run out of this church. Um, they do like it's it's. It's one of the cheesier things in the movie, I think, but uh, like he goes a little bit later on, if we want to skip ahead a little bit, and decides to investigate and finds that like all the singing and the sermons that he hears coming from the church, they're just like recordings on a loop. There's like a, a radio PA set up in there and they're just playing recordings of people singing church songs and like having church services. And it's actually a meeting place for what he finds out is kind of this resistance group. Yep, that is correct, and this is also the first time he discovers the sunglasses. Yes, and doesn't put them on, on right earth? away, though. Yeah. Doesn't put them on. Is why on earth are these sunglasses in mass quantity in here? And uh, yeah, this is pretty much we can reveal right now that um, Gilbert and company are aware, obviously, which is why they are... I, I guess their plan is to like make a whole bunch of these glasses and get people to wear them, but they realize that it's kind of too late and that's not going to be enough to really make a difference. So there's that really creepy scene here too, where Roddy Piper, you know, backs up into the preacher. Yeah. That, who, who is blind by the way. Yeah. So he, uh, he's kind of a startles in the church by the street preacher. And like this guy's just ranting at him and he kind of sneaks out around him and he's able to do that because he's blind. But um, before we sort of move into, like I was saying, the meat of the movie, like there is an inciting incident here that we'll get to, but like viewing it this time, I was just kind of struck by, like, I don't know if I want to call it atmosphere or or maybe just world building, but this film does so much. Like, it's, it's kind of a very slow start, particularly for a Carpenter movie. I mean, most of his films, there's generally something going on in the first 20 minutes or so where it gives you a really good signal of, of what you're in for. You know, like maybe the opening scene of Halloween or something like that. Or, um, mm -hmm. you know, even Assault and Precinct 13. Like, I know they shot the opening sure. later, but the shootout in the alleyway with the gang members there, we get a, a sort mm -hmm. of better sense of what the movie's going to be. But with this one, it's like these little subtle hints like those hacked broadcasts and these sort of aspirational TV commercials that we see all over the place. And um, as I was saying before, there's kind of this mystery revolving around the church and what these people are actually up to in there. And you know, we're, we're getting to know these characters. We're getting to know Frank and, and Nada, and they're sort of developing this friendship and espousing their worldviews, as you were saying. And they kind of just basically come out and say what their, their view of the world is and how they want to get by in the world. And I think it all works really well. I mean, I was mentioning before how funny this movie is, but there's not a whole lot of comedy in the first 20 minutes. No. 
There's very little action. There's very little comedy. It's not boring. It doesn't make you want to tune out because we do know that there are some interesting things sort of happening in the background. But it is like we, we come into this world very slowly and Nada is kind of the audience surrogate also. Like he doesn't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. We want to find out like what the sunglasses are all about and who is hacking these broadcasts. And we don't know who's good and who's bad yet. And it's kind of just a more subtle mode than Carpenter usually works in. And even though this movie overall is not subtle and certainly is, you know, every political point that it makes, it makes with a sledgehammer. Um, like just the the way these scenes develop, I think, and the way they're written and the, the way they the way the action plays out, right? Like even though characters are kind of talking about very specific things, we really don't know much and we're kind of intrigued. Am I crazy to say that? I mean, it's, I'm definitely not crazy to say it's a slow start, but I think it's pretty just, I don't know, it's, it's intriguing the way this movie kind of doesn't show its cards right away. Yeah, the pacing is definitely slow at the beginning. And um, it's funny because that kind of reminds me of Prince of Darkness in a way too. Like, that movie takes a while to get going. I mean, for Christ's sakes, the credit sequence alone is like 10 minutes long. <laughs> it's a great credit sequence, though. Oh, it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> but, um, no, no, I think you're totally right. Like, this is this is a, a different a- approach of storytelling. And, yeah, I think you use the word, like, atmosphere and world building. I think that's all done very well. I mean, even when they're inside this church, right? You know, like, and they find out that this, all the singing is, all the choir is pre-recorded, and there's all this, like, you know, equipment everywhere, and these boxes full of glasses, and um, yeah, it's it's like, we really don't have any clue what's going on. I mean, even after you see Gilbert standing with um, the guy who's been, you know, hacking in, into the television, and they're talking about the glasses and how they need they need more people to help them we still have really no clue what they're talking about yeah and i mean like because there's nothing remotely sci-fi that aside from the hacked broadcast but that's not science fiction i mean they did that right that was max yeah. headroom in the 80s so that's a, a thing that you can actually do in the real world so it almost seems like they're just like a I don't know, some kind of like domestic terrorist group or a resistance group, like they're the Weather Underground or something like that. And yep. this could easily turn into just a movie about like some urban resistance, uh, some anti-capitalist movement, because, you know, there's nothing to suggest aliens at all. There's nothing to suggest science fiction at all. And it really does take us a while to get there. And I, I just like something about that, I think is very, very cool. Like if you didn't know what kind of movie you're walking into, and of course you, I mean, the poster, we, as we talked about the last time, <laughs> kind of gives it completely all away. But if you just went into this completely blind, you wouldn't know that. And, uh, and it would be kind of interesting to just see this play out and take that turn that it takes. And even that's a couple of scenes later, right? Like that inciting incident that I was talking about is the camp gets raided um the church gets raided we see a helicopter just flying overhead yes. and then people running away from the church and then you get this really sort of harrowing siege sequence where you've got these riot police you know 
with the, the riot shields and the helmets, and they're just beating the hell out of people and lighting stuff on fire. There's a bulldozer, like they bring in a bulldozer and just start like leveling the place, and it's a really sort of horrific scene. One thing that I noticed this time that I thought was really weird, and I'm not sure if it was just a budget thing or, or something like that, but this like police vehicle pulls up, and it's like, I guess, supposed to be a SWAT vehicle, and a SWAT team comes out of it, but it says something like scientific investigation unit or something like Ooh, that I didn't catch on the that. side of it. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm not sure if like that was the only van they could get a hold of. As we talked about last episode, this movie was <laughs> modestly budgeted, three or four million dollars. So maybe they couldn't get like a custom SWAT van. But um, oh, I don't know. It's just this a very very weird detail that kind of just caught me this look, time. Around. Carpenter Carpenter needed the money for the helicopter. He was like, look, <laughs> I have to have some choppers in this movie. So you know, if we have to uh, if we have to shave back on the budget. On, on a police car that that's fine we'll just use this it's kind of a very silly moment where we see the helicopter because rowdy <laughs> piper is using binoculars he's looking across the street at the church from the homeless encampment and then he tilts up and like holy shit there's a helicopter right there like i think maybe you would hear it coming yeah I, well one thing we should mention <laughs> before the raid happens is that he uh, rowdy rowdy piper does tip off uh, Frank and say, isn't it kind of weird that our boy Gilbert is going over there? And he's like, look, it's it's just a total prop church and all that. And um, more character development here. We find out that Frank doesn't want to know anything about it. It's none of his business and he doesn't care. Yeah, well, I mean, that really sets up Frank as a character for stuff that happens later on that we're definitely going to talk about. But yeah, I mean, he is just like, literally, we're, we're talking about how these characters are just trying to get by. And that is all he cares about. I want to make some money. I don't want to piss anybody off. I don't want to get into it with anybody. I just want to get a job, make some money, bring it back to my family. Like he is laser focused on what he wants to do and, and is not like, you know, he doesn't really have a lot of political thought going on. Or, or if he does, it's just, you know, strict individualism. Like, he, he realizes the system is going to be against him no matter what. So he doesn't want to get involved with the system any more than he has to. It's just like, let me do my work, pay me, and I'm getting the hell out of here. And uh, and I really like that about him as a character because that does, like, when it becomes time to convince him to join the resistance later in the movie, he is incredibly reluctant to do so. And uh, it leads to the best scene in the movie, which we'll get to. Yeah, and I gotta say, man, this this uh, this raid scene is horrifying. I mean, it is uh, really, I don't know. It it to me, it's a terrifying. Just the idea, right, of like going because because we've established this is base basically a operating like you know peaceful community of people. And, yeah, and there's the way kids. that it, there's so many children there. And like yeah. Carpenter really takes the time when we're introduced to this setting. He shows us a lot of kids. So, yeah, it's their houses that are getting bulldozed and yep. they're being run out of this place. And uh, Gary B. Kibbe, the cinematographer that joins Carpenter for Prince of Darkness, he comes back for this one. And the way he shoots these sequences, I mean, it's just like this flashing red and blue light everywhere. A lot of red light. I mean, everything is just really intense and oversaturated and you know there's a, a shot 
somewhere in the midst of this scene where like the preacher is swinging a bat at the cops and they're kind of keeping their distance and then they just sort of bum rush them and they're hitting them with their nightsticks and stuff. I mean, it's some real police brutality that we see here. It's, it's uh, yeah, as we were talking about last episode, it's an interesting time in American history to be watching this movie. But yeah, some of these scenes just really hit hard just on that kind of level. I mean, it's this really intense, visceral, you know, cops versus the, the downtrodden kind of scenario that gets set up here. Yeah, it's so strange how this movie is so 80s, but at the same time so timeless. It's a very, yeah. very interesting. Um, History repeats itself. Yep. So uh, Rowdy, Rowdy, Rowdy Roddy Piper <laughs> is able to escape unharmed. He gets separated from Frank. Yeah, and he, he runs into this guy. We never see this guy again, but it's a, a young man who I guess lived in the homeless encampment. He's like cowering in a corner, and we see that Nada is, is kind of a helpful or a, a heroic kind of character in that he sort of takes this guy under his wing. He's like, I'll get you to safety. They basically break through the window of an apartment building or something like that and then run into some other survivors of the raid. I mean, it doesn't look like a lot of people get killed, but definitely the setting gets destroyed like we don't really yeah. come back to it we never really see it built up the way it was again very true very true um so now basically this is this is where kind of what what is going on gets gets telegraphed for at this point i think we can get into the sunglasses yes and well he goes back to the church yes. and he takes a box of sunglasses and uh he doesn't open it till he gets to the alleyway right he doesn't yeah he opens it and he like stash i thought it was really weird how he like stashes it in the in like a garbage can or something like that yeah well it's like he still doesn't know and even to this point it's like okay so maybe this is just like a, a bootleg sunglasses ring like maybe they're just making like cheap knockoffs of designer sunglasses yeah these are hot so these sunglasses takes, are like, hot I don't yeah like them. a box full of them is probably worth a few thousand dollars on the black market or whatever so he stashes them he takes one pair for himself i guess because he he just likes the style of them or something. Yeah, they're pretty sweet looking glasses, man. You know? <laughs> well, for 1988, yeah. I would uh, definitely, uh, I'd rock those, man. I'd rock those even today. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and this is where we get like, you know, some of the most epic um, and, and revealing footage in the movie. Uh, because this is an incredible sequence. I mean, what yeah. starts here, there's this whole, I, I'd say it's maybe 20 minutes or so, like from when he first puts the glasses on to when he arrives at uh, Holly's house, I think is mm -hmm. just like this very protracted sort of chase sequence. It's where all the reveals kind of happen in, in really quick succession. We get some of the funniest moments in the movie here. I mean, if you had to go back, like, I, I love the fight scene. I can't wait to talk about the fight scene. But if you had to pull one thing out of this movie just to sort of represent this movie, I think I would take this sequence more so than I would the uh, the epic fight scene from later on because this all, I mean, it, the pacing of this is just amazing. Yeah, it's it and you feel it. I remember even like the first time I saw this movie, you know, when this when it gets to this part of the movie, I'm just thinking, "Oh yeah, this is where it's going to start to get interesting." Well, first he sees the advertising, right? So well, yeah. Like 
so he puts the glasses on. He's sort of like hanging his head. He's looking down at the sidewalk and he notices, even though it's very hard to tell the way this is shot. And it's, it's like the one thing I would definitely change in terms of the look of the movie. He's looking down. He sees that everything is black and white, right? Like the truth that's revealed is black and white and color is the veil that we're supposed to see beyond. And uh, so he takes the glasses off, sees everything sort of back in normal color. But then he starts looking at billboards. He starts looking at advertisements. And rather than being these sort of colorful pictorial advertisements, it's just, you know, it says obey and consume and work eight hours, sleep eight hours and all these sort of subliminal messages that uh, that are the true message of the advertising. So that sort of freaks him out. You know, he's kind of like there's a couple of moments there where he's just like putting the glasses on, taking the glasses off. Oh, God, I love it. I love that so much. Um yeah, so he's seeing all the all the media, the all the camouflage media and what the what the the advertising actually is representing and like you said, you know, obey conform stuff like that. I like the one he goes to like a, a men's shop or he's walking outside of like a, a suit shop, something like that. And there's a sign in the window that says like close out clearance sale. And he puts the glasses on and it just says consume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then there's uh there's there, at one point he looks at like currency and it, it's, it says this is your God on it. This is your God. Yeah. That's pretty that, cool. like like that's when this movie becomes a comedy to me. Right. Yeah. Like, that is when that sledgehammer commentary really starts to hit. But what's cool about this is he doesn't look at people for a while, right? So it's it's like, it kind of happens in stages. This great, like we talked about on the last episode, it's about an awakening. It's about the process of becoming woke, the way we talk about being woke in 2020. And that is exactly what he's doing. But it happens, like, piece by piece. So first it's the advertising, and then it's, uh, he goes up to, like, a newsstand, which mm-hmm. I think know if they have newsstands anymore and he's looking at all the magazines and every one of them is just like subliminal messaging about what you're supposed to do like you know obey your alien overlords or whatever (laughs) um and you think about like particularly back then like magazine advertising it's all just like the tv commercials it's so aspirational you know rolex watches and really expensive cars and designer fragrances and stuff like that i mean it's it's so obvious but it's such an interesting idea uh and then he sees this guy at the newsstand this wealthy looking guy in a suit and sees that this man has a a bug-eyed alien face yes yes and it has a, a kind of skeletal look to it it's pretty freaky, yeah. And, I, and we touched on this a little bit in the last episode, but it does have kind of like an old school monster aesthetic to it. Yeah, it's very Star um, Trek. Sure, sure. But yeah, that's crazy. I mean, this guy—that's that—that's the first person he sees is there at the newsstand, and you can see the dude is like, he's like, "What are you looking at?" You know? Yeah. And uh, eventually, the the guy who runs the newsstand comes up to. Rowdy Roddy Piper and he's like hey you're gonna pay for that and then he looks back at the guy that he just saw with the alien face as he's getting into his car and he's looking at him kind of suspiciously you know so that's that's kind of a signal to this guy knows that he can see something through those glasses yes because then that that um then goes right into the scene where this is where it really goes full scale the grocery store yeah 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 he goes into a supermarket and uh it's just like he can see 
that a good percentage of the people and not all of them not all of them uh, and, but, and that's what i was going to say about the newsstand scene right so the the guy running the newsstand he's just a, a sort of minor character there but after he sees his first alien face and then he looks up at this guy and i think there's a moment there it's it's like a shot of rowdy roddy piper's face where he kind of reacts to the fact that oh wait no this guy's still human he's not one of them so we learn very quickly that not everyone has been taken over and of course you know it's it because there's two characters there right one of them is this wealthy businessman guy the other one is just sort of a blue collar newsstand salesman character we kind of know right away even though we haven't quite figured this out yet that yes it's the wealthy yuppie sort of people that are the aliens and sort of the working class people are are not that i should have taken better notes here because this was this is a there's a really funny line at the at a certain point in the supermarket you know he, he says just, something to the lady like it looks like he fell into a vat of cheese dip in 1957 <laughs> is that what you're talking about because <laughs> i don't get it but i like it that is exactly <laughs> what i'm talking about and that he looks over at you know the the normal person and he's like you you're fine i love you, that that remind me like, of half-baked yeah you know, the, the uh, scene where guillermo diaz is like fuck you fuck you fuck you you're cool fuck you <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because most of the people in that grocery store are they have been taken over by the aliens i love like the conversations that those characters have like we only get like bits and pieces of them but there are these ladies talking about like a dinner party and she's like she served blue tortilla chips how could she that's so tacky it's like yeah i guess that's kind of what these people would be talking about yeah isn't there a conversation about like taking like lamaze classes yes or something yes like later that? on like, sure like, yeah so yeah, and this is when something crazy happens because at first the woman just seems kind of like a, you know, she's just trying to act like a like a normal human being, like she's offended by his comments, but then she uh she eventually breaks out like her alien watch and starts talking into it. It's like a uh like a Dick she's, Tracy she's a, two-way wrist radio kind of thing. Yeah, she's able to like <laughs> notify um, everyone else, she's like, we have a, is it, we have a seer or we have a, a, a looker. What does she call him? Yeah. She, something like that. Else. Yeah. And, uh, this is when he's asked to leave the store and he does. I can't remember his line there either. When he's, when he's leaving the shop, I really like it too. Well, anyway. he, he says something like, I, um, I don't like this one bit. And then he says it again. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah I, I guess. One bit. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah. okay. So. The scene that follows this, I think, is really important. Uh, so he is kind of, he, he leaves the store. The police pull up. It's these two police officers. They're kind of these, like, you know, bro-y white police officers. They're both kind of aggressive and in his face. And what eventually ends up happening, and, and I mean very, very quickly, is he takes one of their guns and shoots him. Yep. Like, he's killing cops kind of right away. So we've gone in what's it five minutes of screen time four or five minutes of screen time from him just being kind of a normal person not knowing what's going on to this great awakening and then he becomes a killer like he decides very very quickly in this moment that all right they are definitely aliens i can definitely like he says to the cop that he shoots he's like oh you bastards died just like we do so he kills that cop and then the other cop kind of comes at him with his nightstick and he shoots him too so very very quickly it, it becomes i think a, a more serious and a much much darker kind of movie because he's just laying waste to everything that he sees 
80s, right? Like he just makes this decision that, nope, they are bad. They're all bad. You know, it's not like they're just humans that were overtaken by the aliens and they could get better. You know what I mean? Like, is that Oh yeah. a little weird? I, I don't know if it's weird. It's just, it's kind of darker than I would expect. Well, when he's in the supermarket, don't forget, there's that scene where, like, there's the president of the United States yes. is, like, give, giving a speech, and he's watching it, and he sees that he's an alien, too. And it's and Reagan, says, right? Like, he's talking about mourning in yeah, America. I think that was Ronald absolutely. Reagan's thing. So it's like, he's, you know, because we never see his face, it's just alien Ronald Reagan. Right. And he kind of chuckles to himself and says something like, only we could have concocted something like this. And, like, yeah. that's when I think he knows, like, that scene's important because I think he knows, like the severity of it like it's happening on a governmental level it's happening on a, on a law enforcement level and th- while the cops aren't like particularly threatening they are you know basically i mean he's just calling them out and he's like i know you guys are up to something they're like oh you know we can we can work this out or whatever and yeah in, in kind of a uh, abrupt moment he steals their weapons and and kills them yeah and then goes into the the police car and gets a shotgun out of there which plays yeah. into another really famous scene in this movie but yeah so it's uh it's a very I don't know, like the the way that decision gets made and and all of that, like I was saying, it's just such a quick progression. And that's why this sequence is so fascinating that that he goes from one stage through these sort of different strata of being aware of what's going on and then fighting back against what's going on. I mean, you know, it's it just the thought process is very, very fast. It is. And I just think at, I, I think a lot of that's just probably in the interest of let's not waste any more time with this movie and start no pun intended, but start kicking some ass, you know? Yes. I mentioned last time on the show, and uh, I guess this was a major cliffhanger. I said, I had a theory about nada and where he comes from because we don't know much, right? Like he, he mentions to the lady at the employment office, well, I was in Colorado. I worked there for 10 years. The jobs dried up, whatever. I think nada is one of those kind of people who has always kind of had a feeling that something like this might happen. Like if he was a 2020 character, he'd probably be on some very questionable, like, like social media message boards. Like he seems Mm. like one of those like conspiracy believer kind of people. Like he's almost been waiting for this and kind of preparing for something like this. Do you get that impression? I had never thought of that for a second, but it's interesting analysis. I mean, I I would definitely lend some credit to your theory. It makes sense, but I never, I never, uh, I never really contemplated his his history before. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the movie doesn't really ask us to, right? And the, there's not a lot of backstory for any of these characters. But to me, it almost seems like, you know, not that he's a killer necessarily, not that he's been like stockpiling guns or anything, because he's not. I mean, he's a, a street person, right? He's been kind of riding the rails and living on the streets and stuff like that. But it's almost like he's kind of had this thought that, you know, anything could have, like, remember Red Dawn? You've seen Red Dawn, right? <laughs> Where, oh my uh, god, it's so long ago. I mean, well, it's uh, the Russians invade, you know, it's a Cold War. Is it movie. Dolph Lundgren in that movie? Uh, no, you're thinking of Red Scorpion, also. A oh, I'm thinking of Red Scorpion. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, I, maybe I, thought I never have say, seen Isn't that Red the Dawn. one with Bridget Nielsen? No, that's Red Sonia. <laughs> um, <A> Red Sonia. <laughs> 
<laughs> but like you got Arnold in that one, I know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, briefly. Um, but I kind of feel like Nada has always had in his mind, like you know, the Russians could invade at any time, or some kind of major cataclysm could happen, and I've got to be ready for it. Like maybe that's why he is kind of this solitary character. That he, I mean, you know, we don't know anything about his relationships, about his romantic life. He doesn't, I guess, have a family. He's kind of a real loner, and maybe that's what it is. You know, he's just uh, he's always kind of had in the back of his mind, like the world could just go to shit an instant and I have to be ready to spring into action and I I kind of feel like that's what he does in this scene and that's why he's just so adept at this I mean right away like instead of running away from that scene with the cops what does he do he goes into the bank he says I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum and he just starts killing people aliens he kills aliens it's it it's a certified rampage, yeah. for sure. Well, uh, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It's, it's like a Grand Theft Auto, you know, when you first got that game. You're like, oh, I could kill whoever I want here. It feels a little bit like that. Um, somebody does pull on him first, right? Like, there's a security guard in the bank yeah. that pulls a gun out, and then he, he kills that guard, and then he just starts shooting everybody. Like, we do see there's some normal people in the bank, and he's just sort of willy-nilly firing with a shotgun at everyone, <laughs> but we are, I guess, meant to think that he's only killing the aliens he does blow this one guy away you know there's there's not a lot of blood in this scene it's black and white anyway but there is one big blood splatter behind somebody and uh and yeah it's uh, rampage is exactly the word for it well, well we we get a whole lot of willy-nilly uh firearm <laughs> shooting from rowdy rowdy piper throughout I, the rest I get of this the film. feeling watching this movie that he had never handled a gun before that's that's Quite possible. Um, <laughs> I do spray like spray and pray. Although maybe, maybe if you were holding a high-powered rifle for the first time, that's how you would do it. I don't know. Yeah, John's like Rowdy. You're doing fine. You're fine. <laughs> that's good. Um, the um, I I really like the, this one scene here though, where he does confront a police officer after going through the rampage and realizes that he's not an alien. This is a great and, scene. Yes, and um, you know lets the guy go, which is totally metaphorical to, I think, Carpenter just trying to inject into the narrative that, like, look, I'm not saying that all rich people are bad or all police officers are bad, you know, and it also shows that Nada is also not, like, a complete psychopath. Yeah, he's not deranged. He has a plan. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. And, um, you know, like, he's not even, like, he kind of intimidates that cop, but he just says, you know, beat your feet and makes him run away or something. Put your gun beat down your feet. And, and run. Yep. yep. And then is this when the drone comes over him? Yes. And he, uh, and he, and he it's lo- somewhere in there. Yeah, this little UFO looking thing. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had taken better notes on just his quotes. He says something really funny to this drone. Uh, he says something like, then, that's not nice. <laughs> that's not very nice. <laughs> yeah, 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 something like that. I love also the drone, I guess, is completely cloaked because he points the shotgun up at it. He hits it. We get this like kind of stock footage explosion. And then we get a shot of him in color. So not through the glasses. And he like backs away from something that we can't see. Like it's like the pieces of it are falling on the ground all around him. And it's just, you know, Carpenter must have just directed him like just jump out of the way like something's falling out of the sky at you. And it's kind of a silly (laughs) little moment there. Like even the innards of the drone are cloaked from him oh that's i didn't notice that that is interesting so now enter uh meg foster's character yeah we get a shot of a a parking garage and he just kidnaps this lady and says drive i need to get out of here yep that's essentially it she guess she was uh 
<laughs> just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But then when we find out who her character is, there's a, a just very coincidental element that happens here. So she takes him back to her place. He's like, hey, he's trying to explain to her all of this madness that he's been seeing. And uh, she wants or he tries to get her to put on the glasses. She does not want. I to. love this moment. Right. So he's kind of rambling about aliens and everything that's going on. And I think she very reasonably is just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll do what you say. You've got the gun. She says, she says oh, you've got two guns. You're in control, right? You're not sorry. You're you're in control, I think is yeah. what she says. And then he tries to get her to put the glasses on. And she says, well, either way, right? I'm going to say that I see whatever you want me to see yes. through these glasses. I love that moment. I mean, knowing what we know about her later on, I'm not sure it's it's the right choice. But in that moment right like that feels very realistic to me that feels like how you would handle a situation like this if you were just this character where this gigantic wrestler guy with two guns just like kidnaps you and makes you like take him into your apartment Uh, by the way the apartment reminded me a lot of lauren hutton's in someone's watching me just kind of struck me this time Ooh, interesting (laughs) very sort of 80s stylist like modern apartment Meg Foster is a little bit better of an of an actor, though I think. I like um, Meg Foster in this movie very much. She kind of has that uh, that smoky kind of femme fatale film noir voice, and uh, I don't know, I dig that. A so Kathleen Turner ish. Yeah, and uh, I love this. So basically, sort of out of nowhere. She just like bashes him over the head with something. <laughs> well, she gets like, him to go I over mean... to like the sliding glass door. She hits him over the head with a yeah. bottle and somehow he like breaks through the glass. She lives up on a really big hill, like somewhere up in the, the Hollywood Hills or something. Mm-hmm. And he just falls out of the window. I don't know exactly how that happens. Well, here's the thing. This is funny. When I was watching the, the director commentary, when they're driving to her house, Carpenter mentioned that that was like the neighborhood he was living in at the time. Um, he's like, yeah, that's, that's my neighborhood and my house is like just up the road or whatever. But yeah, she bashes him over the head with this bottle and then we get probably the, the biggest piece of stunt work in this movie. I mean, some dude had to like jump out of this window and just, you know, roll down this, this hill for a little bit. It's it's painful to watch. It definitely is. Like, I wonder, did we just not get the shot? Did they just not shoot the moment where she pushes him? Because otherwise, how does he end up like, you know, hundreds of feet down the hill after just getting bashed over the head with a bottle? I can't remember if it shows them if it if it shows her throwing him out the window or not. All I all, I don't think it does. I hear the bottle breaking over his head and seeing that happen, and then I just see him flying through the glass. And then yeah. <laughs> it's a great scene, though. You're right. I mean, it's a cool stunt. Oh, I like. No, I, I, I totally dig it. Um, so where do we go from here? Well, this is interesting, right? Like, he's kind of, like, he's at this very down-and-out kind of place, this character, right? Like, he mm. can't really convince anyone of, of what he's seeing. I mean, it, we do, even though we've seen him do some really violent, horrible stuff, we kind of understand that it's justified, but, like, nobody is on his side. He doesn't know who to turn to. He's kind of wandering around. It's like he's homeless again and uh, yes. and really has nobody. So we just get a lot of shots of him. He walks back into the city, which... If 
if he's on the run, you know, kind of not following the rules of uh, of on the lamb chase kind of movies where he just sort of goes back like he just doesn't know what to do, ends up back in the alleyway. Um, another one of my favorite sort of smaller scenes in this movie, I think it happens right after this, is uh, he's looking for the box of sunglasses because he leaves them upstairs, right? He leaves them in Meg Foster's apartment. She pushes him or he falls out the window or whatever it is. And so that one pair that he held on to is no longer his. And so he has to go back for the sunglasses. They end up in a garbage truck and we get this great shot from the inside of a garbage truck. Oh, yeah. He's totally in the garbage truck. Before <laughs> before we get to the garbage truck, though, I just thought of something. You know, we're talking about Meg Foster bashing him over the head with the bottle and pushing him through the window. And like the first time you're watching this movie, you're like, why did she just do that? Like, there, you have no idea why that happens. And I just wanted to mention before we move on to when he goes to find the sunglasses in the garbage truck that she does she does call the police after she pushes him out the window. Yes. Well, we don't know who she's talking to, which is kind of I know, of you don't know who she's talking It's just such a, it's like we've seen the movie a bunch of times now, so talking about it, it's like, oh yeah, that's just normal. But now I'm thinking back to the first time I saw it, and I'm going, why would she do something so drastic to somebody? I mean, he easily could have lost his life. Well, I mean, he's uh, at that point, right? I mean, he's basically assaulted her, kidnapped her, broken That's into her point. house. I mean, just you know, that. Like, she is so much smaller than him. Like, he's Rowdy Roddy Piper. He's a famous wrestler. He's got the body of a, a professional wrestler, right? So, you know, it's a pretty ballsy move on her part to just bash him over the head with a bottle and push him out the window. But, you know, I guess she's just a, a tough woman. And we you sort don't of mess learn... with Meg Foster. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You don't fuck with Meg Foster. But. <laughs> But yeah, then she sort of makes this phone call and we as the audience seeing it for the first time interpret it as that, you know, she's just a very measured kind of calm person. She's calling the police and telling them what happened. And I think she says something like, I think he might be dead or something like that. But uh, but she does kind of explain the situation. And of course, when we learn about her later on, it must be that she's calling either the resistance or her, you know, alien overlords or whatever it is but yeah i just uh, the garbage truck thing i love because the shot inside the Mm. garbage truck where and i don't understand this at all right so he opens up the back of the garbage truck he goes in we get this great shot looking out from the back of the garbage truck he's going through the trash he finds the box of sunglasses and then the truck sort of turns upward like it's gonna dump out all the garbage and he has to like struggle to stay inside it and then he just gets (laughs) dumped out with the trash but why is that happening why is the garbage the the trash collector why is he picking up the garbage and then just dumping it right in the same alleyway that's just <laughs> part of the you know recycling process i have no idea dude that's a, that's a, a 1988 a... recycling no that's <laughs> <laughs> so you pick up the garbage drive 10 feet forward and then just dump the garbage yeah maybe he was just pissed you know like he was like one minute he's a garbage man, then he like, you know, he he just got pissed and decided to quit his job and just dump all the trash in the street. That's right. Like oh. no one has probably ever given any thought to that scene whatsoever. But like, I yeah. love the look of it so much. And then I was like, wait a minute, he just picked that garbage up. Why is it like? I guess he wouldn't know that the back of the truck is open. But then why would he dump the? I don't know. Anyway, it's a cool dude. Scene. How long could we talk about this? <laughs> oh man. 
Well, I mean, like, it's kind of a weirdly long scene in the movie, right? Like, he's digging through that trash for a really long time, and then he gets dumped at, like, I guess Carpenter just sort of wanted that visual metaphor, right? Like, he's trash. He's getting dumped out with the garbage. And uh, and that mm-hmm. leads to his encounter with Frank, I I think, right? There's nothing in between there that I'm No, about. yeah, he, he goes back to the construction site, A, because he's he needs to get his paycheck, and Frank is there. He's kind of, like, hiding out. And at this point, I mean, doesn't Frank tell him, like, dude, everyone's, like, after your ass? Yeah, like, he's a murderer. He's a wanted murderer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wants absolutely nothing to do with him. And then this is when what we see here is Rowdy Roddy Piper in an alleyway trying to get Frank to try on these sunglasses. Frank apparently is the most stubborn human being on Earth. And uh, or actually, they, they kind of both are. And well, like, as we said before, though, I mean, I think that's very well set up about Frank. But yeah, he, he shows back up and he says, here's a week's pay or something like that. Like, he's that good of a guy. Like, first of all, even though he thinks that Nada is a murderer, he says, don't let anybody see you when they see each other at the construction site. Like, he is still going to cover for him because he's that good of a friend. Like, you know, I don't want anything to do with you, but I'm also not going to turn you in. I'm not going to, like, alert the boss or whatever. And then he shows up in the alleyway and, uh, and yeah, he tries tries to give him some money and Nada tries to get him to put the sunglasses on. And then we get this incredible fight scene. Yeah. I, I just want to set this up as if you've never seen this movie before, there is a fight that ensues between these two characters that just lasts forever. Like <laughs> and five it, and a half minutes of screen time. It's, it's amazing. It's pretty great. And I, I loved um, listening to the bonus materials of the Blu-ray when uh, Carpenter and and Rowdy were talking about how they were hanging out at uh, John's house, and for about four weeks, uh, Keith David and Rowdy Roddy Piper would were rehearsing this fight scene like in his backyard, huh. um, just kind of like brawling around and stuff like that, and coming up with different moves. And you know, Keith David is—I uh, guess he was like an amateur boxer or something. I don't I know if that's right. That. I seem to remember that, that he was amateur boxer, Rowdy Roddy Piper, obviously a professional wrestler. So they both kind of like worked with each other to figure out how they were going to chore- choreograph this fight. By the way, the cor- the actual uh, choreographer, as far as title is concerned, little trivia tidbit here, is the guy who plays all of the uh, alien face people. Huh. They use the same guy for every single alien face in this movie. And uh, (laughs) they just didn't have a lot of masks to go around. I guess so. But at any rate, this this guy who was the uh, the choreographer said that like working with them on this fight was just like such a blast and one of the most fun parts of the movie. I mean, he had multiple cameras set up and just was like, all right, guys, go at it, you know? Yeah, I mean, what I love about this fight, it's mostly, like, it's not super wide shots, but, like, when you shoot a fight scene with very wide angles, right, it almost looks a little graceful. Like, you know, think about the scene at the end of Kill Bill with Lucy Liu and and Uma Thurman where Mm. they're having that great fight out in the snow, and there's a lot of very, very wide shots there, and we just see sort of the grace of the movement of the two, uh, you know, these two characters sword fighting. This is not that at all, right? It's mostly close-ups and medium shots it's very visceral you mentioned it like jarring yeah yeah use the word brawling like that's what they're doing they're like sucker punching each other there's nut shots and like you know they're (laughs) like choke holds and they're kneeing each other and there's something very kind of raw about it and 
just looks so painful. Like some of the other, like I mentioned earlier, there was that scene where the cops are beating people up when they raid the homeless camp. And you can see that some of the punches are not really connecting there. And, you know, the nightsticks are probably not, they're like made out of rubber or something like that. And this scene, the way it's shot, the way the sound editing works, I feel every punch and every sort of knee to the groin and kick and everything else. Like these all look like they're connecting. It looks like these guys are just going really, really hard. We do get wrestling sort of moves there's like some holds and some throws there's a Mm -hmm. lot of uh you know you mentioned keith david was was a boxer um we do get some great just he kind of like rabbit punches him at one point and it all just feels very brutal very visceral they're both dirty like you know just kind of watching it this last time i noticed i mean they're in this alleyway there's trash strewn everywhere their clothes are dirty and kind of ripped and beat up looking i mean everything about it is just raw and brutal and you know it almost becomes like a silent comedy thing where it just keeps going and going and going and every time it's like just put the glasses on it's like no yeah. i refuse <laughs> let's fight more yeah there's like this great part too where frank like looks like he's gonna make peace with him and and help him up and then he just like socks him again yeah, yeah mean, well he does he like leans uh, down to help him up and knowing what <laughs> we know about frank we think he's gonna be an honorable like combatant and instead he just like sucker punches him when he's halfway up Oh my god, dude. I I have to so I just opened up Wikipedia, right? I have to read. This is so funny the way this is worded. It says Frank and Nada get into a long brawl, after which Frank is too tired to prevent Nada from putting the sunglasses on him. And then it just says after seeing the aliens and a flying saucer, Frank agrees to go hiding with Nada. <laughs> That's he's so just, brief, you know, but, Frank yeah. is a, like I said, he's a realist. He's a hard guy to convince. My favorite shot, I mean, we could talk about this fight scene all day. It, it's just so great. I love the way it's shot. It is. There's this it great moment. It's one of the wider shots where it's one of those points in the fight where you think the fight is over. And Nada's on the ground. He's all beat up. Frank goes over to this wall, this like crumbled wall, and he's kind of catching his breath and he's leaning over. And we see him. He's facing off camera. And Nada just comes up behind him. And the fight just starts up again like it's probably been five minutes at this point already and like at at so many points along this fight it's like all right this is over it's a draw or somebody won or he's not going to convince them just sort of get out of here move on with your life and nope then it keeps going and this one there's something so funny about the way nada just kind of like sneaks up on him and just starts beating the shit out of him again after all that we've already seen it's like neither one of them is willing to let this go neither one of them is uh, is willing to let the other one win well at one point at one point Rowdy Roddy Piper just starts laughing like during the fight. Just, yeah. just out of the sheer ridiculousness of it. I wonder, or I wonder if that's just an outtake that they kind of left in. Because obviously in these, there, yeah. these two guys had a blast doing this. I'm sure they did. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I mean, it kind of does fit with both of their characters too. You know, they're both sort of aware of the ridiculousness of the situation while it's happening. Like, <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll keep fighting, but why are we doing this again? Yeah, and there is a scene where I think... Rowdy Roddy Piper kind of realized that you know the, the fight's kind of going too far. Like after he like you know shatters the the window in the car, and he's just like he's kind of like all right, you know this is this is <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, like like you are my friend, and I I didn't really like. There's that that moment where he hesitates. He's like I didn't I did not really want to hurt you that badly. You yeah. Know? So, but yeah. So according to Wikipedia, Frank puts the glasses on now and sees an alien <laughs> sees aliens in a flying saucer. 
And yeah, this is cool. Like he's like totally tripped out um, when he sees everything because eventually, well, that, he right does away, too, put right? the glasses on. Yeah, yeah, and it, he's they're in an alleyway, and there's two people walking by on the street, and just at that moment, it happens to be two aliens, two yuppie yep. alien people. So he sees that right away, and then one of those drones flies overhead, and yeah, I mean, I think that's about enough to convince him. Yep, I just I love. The whole fight scene, right? Like, it's so ridiculous that it, like, it's one big burly guy trying to get the other big burly guy to put on a pair of sunglasses, and that's what they're fighting over. And there's just something so absurd and surreal and awesome about that. I mean, like I said, I think it's the best scene in the movie. It's the funniest scene in the movie. It's the best choreographed action scene oh, in the movie. It, it's phenomenal. It, 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 is con- it is considered uh, by many just one of the best fight scenes in cinema history. Period. And there's a, a lot of movies that have mimicked it. Uh, I probably could have done more research on that. but South uh, Park had a, a almost shot-for-shot shot remake of it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, yeah. So, now we're, we're kind of into, like, the, the last portion of the movie here. Yeah, this is Act 3. I mean, it really, once this movie gets going, it doesn't really let up at all. And it's a short movie. I mean, it's it's well under 100 minutes. and uh, And we are almost at the climax here. Yeah, so we get Gilbert back in the picture. They all meet up at this. Yeah, it just looks like a, I don't know. It's like a, like a, a built flop house hotel. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, we get to that. Um, well, first, Frank and Nada kind of go on the run together, which is cool. And that's when we know the sort of buddy relationship is solidified. And they check into a room and, uh, and Nada says something like, ain't love grand. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, the, the guy at the desk must think they're just like a very burly gay couple or something. Yeah. And the, yeah. And the movie spends some time. Showing Frank trying to process what he's just seen. Yes, which reminds me so much of one of my favorite moments of Keith David in The Thing is like at the very end of the movie where he says to Kurt Russell, so what do we do? Um, You know, it's in the intro to this show. And uh, and we kind of have a scene just like that here. Like, all right, so there's been an alien invasion. All of these people have been taken over. What's the next step? Where, Where do we go from here? Yep. Yeah, there's a pretty emotional um, monologue here from Rowdy Roddy Piper as well. Uh, about as close to that as he ever gets, yeah. Well, from what I understand, again, just from uh, listening to the supplemental materials, I guess that scene took a lot of takes for him to do. Like, he kept breaking up for some reason. It was a very personal scene to him. Huh. And uh, Carpenter had to work with him quite a bit to get that scene, for what it's worth. Uh, it seems like a pretty emotional guy. He's probably been through a lot in real life, I get the impression. But uh, anywho. Yeah, so they go on the run. They check into this hotel room. They're kind of trying to rationalize, like, everything that's going on. And, I mean, at this point, Frank is pretty much in alignment with, all right, man, I'm, like, part of this movement with you. And this is what they they bump into Gilbert, just, like, walks in. It's just like, they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? Or something like that. Yeah, like, like, that's what I was going to say. I don't really understand this because they do say at some point in that scene, like, all right, we have to find the people who made these glasses, which is obviously the resistance group that was in the church. And then they sort of encounter Frank and he invites them, you know, he lets them in basically to this resistance meeting that's happening. Um, What I do like about all this is the odds that are stacked so high against them. We really get a good sense of that here, right? Like, you know, these aliens are everywhere we are just two guys with some guns and you know we're gonna do the best we can like at least we can see them that's the only advantage we really have Uh, and we're both big huge burly dudes but other than that the whole situation is so stacked against the two of them 
Yep. Absolutely. I love how when they first arrive at this place, they're uh, they're upgraded to contact lenses. That's pretty cool. They figured <laughs> that one out. Yeah, I, that had to be like a plot <laughs> thing or, or just, a, you know, we don't want to have these guys wearing sunglasses for like the climactic action scene of the movie. So, oh, hey, we got these contact lenses now. They don't hurt. They don't make you uh, because you get like withdrawal from the sunglasses, right? You take them off and, yes. uh, and you start to feel like withdrawal symptoms. So I guess that is better. But yeah, that seems kind of more like a device for the movie than than for the story. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, from here on out, it just t- turns into like a full blown action picture. Yeah, basically. I mean, this is the action climax of the movie. the uh, The meeting is raided. There's what looks like is about to be like a romantic scene between Holly and Nada. He finds her there at the meeting, sees that she's a member of the resistance, and it kind of doesn't make sense because he was basically telling her that he knew what was going on and now he sees her here and she goes to explain it. I mean, it's almost kind of a cool thing that the movie does. It's like, all right, like rather than have her talk her way around what happened before, that's when the police bust in and uh, we get another scene like before where it's just sort of mass murder. You know, the authorities come in with machine guns. There's this like phalanx of cops with automatic weapons and grenades and they're just lined up shoulder to shoulder and just killing everybody yeah and it's it's cool too because in this scene where they're in the uh we'll we'll call it the flop house we do learn a little bit more about the aliens and their motives you know and basically how they're even going to the extent of recruiting other humans to be be part of their cause by like bribing them with political positions and uh and just like wealth and power and and stuff like that so they're manipulating other people yeah and again that's part of this movie's not so subtle commentary right like it's uh you know it's like the people who uh, appeased the nazis in world war ii like you know if you uh if you go along like we'll give you all of these riches and we'll sort of give you positions in uh, in the bureaucracy and whatever and so a lot of these people are are just kind of okay with that right like i care so little about my fellow man and i care so much about myself that yeah i don't care what these aliens do uh, as long as I get paid and we get a character later on uh, in the very last scene of the movie that kind of just spells that all out right like oh no you guys don't get it like why don't you just let them do what they want to do and get a taste of the good life I think that that guy in the uh, in the base says to them so yeah Yeah. I, I know that at some point we find out that Buck is is one of those who has been recruited to the lavish if you will, it is Buck's character, right? Or am I getting confused with someone else? Um, you mean the bearded guy that they run into at the uh, like the meeting at the end? Yeah, is I... that is that George Buck Flowers' character? You know, I'm not sure. I think it is. Right, because because we see him in the beginning in the homeless encampment, and then we see him like dressed because he does say, uh, "Well, it's been a while since I've seen you," or something like that. Yeah, dude, he, like, takes him on a tour of this place. He's yeah, like, let me, which, let me, is, let me. which is ridiculous, but a lot of fun. Yeah, he's like, let me show you around, you know, and, and, and it, it shows totally what, like, you know, exactly what you would picture a giant political fundraiser to look like where there's, you know, everyone's out having dinner and cocktails and Frank and Rowdy Roddy Piper are both just like, their jaws are just like, they can't even, like, believe what they're seeing. And like, and to the extent of it. 
Yes. So they use the alien watch, uh, like the escape hatch thing. That's these watches that they all carry have a thing where it basically gives you like a portal into this base that I guess runs under the entire city of Los Angeles and connects all the buildings, I think. They don't really explain that. But yeah, they end up in this sort of concrete bunker and they sneak past some guards. They're getting away. Like they're, I think, the only survivors of this raid on the the resistance meeting. And Holly seems to get caught up in it and maybe gets killed there. We don't know yet. And so they escape into this bunker. They hear some like clapping and like piano music. And they end up in, yeah, like a political fundraiser. And one of the guys who's obviously an alien is up on stage saying by 2025, it's going to be not just America, but the whole world. We're just taking everything over. And then we we run into this character who, like you said, gives him a tour of the whole facility. Uh, another one of my favorite shots in this film is the airport moment there where they see this like Star Trek transporter thing where people step onto this like there's a backdrop of of space it's like this thing that you stand on and it shoots energy into you and then projects you out into space yep that's exactly what it is it's one of the weirdest moments in the movie it's totally super bizarre and <laughs> and super weird but yeah I mean I love this whole ending of the movie you know right right up from the moment where they they have the meeting they they get together with the resistance and you know the raid happens i mean they're on the run there's a lot of uh there's a lot of shooting and just <laughs> killing here <laughs> basically um as but you know before they get into the uh before they're able to activate the portal from the as you said the crazy wristwatches that they have <laughs> Uh yeah, I mean this movie just gets bonkers. He and and it happens fast. Yeah, yeah. Then they're at the fundraiser thing. Then they're at the the uh, the spaceport. And yeah, I don't even understand exactly what that is. It's like, are they beaming these people out uh, to other planets or something? Well, or yeah, because they're like the next shuttle for Andromeda is leaving, but it's not a vehicle. It's just like like it, like I said, it looks like a Star Trek transporter, but you can see space. You can see like a little ball of energy like shooting out into some point in space. I mean, it, it kind of makes no sense at all, but it also looks really cool. Like this movie, kind of like you were saying there, right? It goes from being I mean, I guess kind of an over-the-top comedic sci-fi movie to a very over-the-top comedic sci-fi movie, right? Like, it yeah. goes almost to, like, a Terry Gilliam kind of place where it's just totally absurdist. And, you know, we've got this airport thing where you stand on this transporter and we can beam you out into space. How cool is that? Yep. We have this p- portal that, that comes out of your watch where you can escape anything. Yeah, and I'm like 90% sure now that the guy that was the drifter is is George Buck Flower, who is now giving them the tour. I think you're right, Chris, and I feel very stupid for not putting two and two together with that. Well, that's fine. He he. Basically, we see this. Uh, I love this. This is like right in the closing moments of the movie here. We see the, uh, the cable station, which is... You know, after seeing this this kind of, uh, you know, this campaign <laughs> fundraising meeting and, and then seeing the spaceport and everything, and then they see even right down to, like, the news and the media that all of that is being controlled by these aliens as well, which I think is pretty cool. And then, basically, I'm trying to remember exactly what happens here because I feel like there's another chase 
And well, at... they they learn that it's all being broadcast from this one satellite dish on the roof, and they're like, "All right, we got to get up to the roof." Got to get up to the roof. Sets That's up it. this kind yeah, of very yeah. diehard like sequence where it's like we'll fight our way through the building. It doesn't end up like they just kind of run from place to place and shoot some people. There's nothing like very tense about it. Oh but, wait. Uh, Nick, do you think Die Hard was influenced by They Live in any kind of way? They came out the same year. I was going to say, I thought They Live came out one year before, but well, they were both 88? Yeah, they were both 88. And and Die Hard, <clears throat> you know, I've read some really interesting commentary on that movie about how that's an anti-capitalist satire also, where you've got this mm. blue-collar cop and these sort of white-collar criminals facing off in this corporate tower. That's another discussion for another day. But yeah, I mean, wow. there's, there's definitely some similarities there. But yeah, Nada and Frank just fight their way through the building. They encounter Holly again. So uh, Nada, uh, he's got a thing for Holly. And, um, you know, even though... They haven't had a lot of chemistry up to this point. He is very concerned about her and wants to have her come along with them. And then sort of they're fighting their way through the building. They end up in a stairwell and uh, Nada goes up ahead to the roof and she just shoots Frank. Like kind of out of nowhere, Frank's death scene is off screen. I feel really bad about it, but it's kind of just like, you know, it's almost not even a moment. It is. Almost not even a moment. And that's what's so disappointing about it, because at this point, you're like invested in this. Like I this character has really earned my respect. So the fact that we find out here in an instant that, you know, Holly is an insider and assassinates Frank is very depressing to me. But you're right. It is done very nonchalantly. (laughs) Yeah, I don't mind her betrayal. I mind that Frank just kind of gets wiped out off screen and we we barely had a chance to say goodbye. I mean, I guess that's how it is, right? I just got the best idea. You know what would have been way better, John Carpenter, is if you had Holly and Frank get in a fight, just like the one that Rowdy and Frank got into in the <laughs> Right, because she's got, like, alien strength, so she's just, like, beating the shit out of him. He's like, what is happening? You know what? Dude. That would actually make the scene earlier make sense, right? Where she clocks him over the head with the bottle. Maybe she's super strong because she's actually an alien. Dude, she's, like, throwing Frank Armitage, like, down flights of stairs and whatnot. Like, dude, it would be just... Great. That's I would what I watch young, skinny Meg Foster beat the shit out of Keith David. Absolutely. It'd be more satisfying than what we get here. But anyway. Better movie. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I just said better movie. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. If they ever do a reboot of this, which I'm sure they eventually will, as we were talking about, um, mm. maybe they'll they'll change the ending. So Nada makes it to the roof and it's just this one satellite dish, right? Like this whole thing basically is controlled. All of these subliminal messages, all of this stuff that we've been so concerned about through the whole movie. It's just this one central thing. I mean, it's it's kind of very stupid i don't know if there's any other way that i can put it it's like uh like people complain about the death star in star wars right where there's this one exhaust port and if they just hadn't put that thing there then luke skywalker would have never been able to blow up the death star at the end of the original star wars a new hope this is kind of like that times a million it's like oh all you have to do is destroy this satellite dish which he does very very easily and it basically ends the whole problem And then we get another helicopter. Yeah, so, well, this is a great shot, actually, right? So he gets to the roof. Holly sneaks up behind him. She's got a gun. She's trying to tell him, basically, join us, you know, like like aliens in these movies always do. He ends up killing her, right? It's, It's him that shoots her, right? Yes. She doesn't get caught in the crossfire or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a helicopter, very much like Die Hard there also, right? Like the uh, the cops are shooting at him from a helicopter. 
and he blows up the satellite dish. He shoots this one sort of thing. I guess only he can see it because he's wearing the contacts. There's this sort of like central core of the satellite dish that he destroys. And uh, and then we get this great shot of him. So the helicopters are kind of in the background of the shot and he's framed in the front and we see that he's dying. We see that he's been shot. He's not going to make it. But, you know, his sort of last act of defiance against the system is to very slowly flip the bird to... Uh, to the not the helicopter but the satellite dish i think it's, it's a little the middle finger yeah we just get that sort of last act that last middle finger um you know fuck you aliens and uh and then we cut to just like straight up comedic sequences to end the movie like the the story basically ends there and then we almost just get a montage of uh it almost looks like snl clips or something like that yeah, it's a montage of it's basically once this satellite is destroyed, all of a sudden you don't need the glasses anymore to be able to see the aliens that are hiding. Yeah, it's so like all over just... town people are seeing uh, aliens. Like, um, of course, the the funniest and best part of this is there's a TV on in a bar and they're watching, I guess it's Siskel and Ebert, like definitely the character in the foreground who we only see the back of his head, but he's kind of a heavy set, gray haired guy with glasses. It's definitely Roger Ebert and this very skinny Siskel like alien in the background. And he's talking <laughs> about how movies have too much sex and violence in them. And he's like, directors like John Carpenter and George Romero. And I'm like, wow, that's the first time I think Carpenter has ever name checked himself in a movie i love it yep yeah that is pretty great self-reflexive bit there and and of course you know carpenter had been criticized for the violence in his movies up until this point so gets to take a couple of uh, of last pot shots well yeah well he also is clearly the just the type of character who really doesn't care about the criticism or reviews that he gets i don't think No, I mean, Carpenter was never a guy who made movies for the critics anyway, but like, you know, we've talked on the show about how Roger Ebert was kind of unfair to some of his work, and I don't know exactly where Siskel sat with with the Carpenter filmography, but, you know, a lot of times those guys were kind of in agreement with one another, even though their whole shtick was they always disagreed. Yeah, I mean, here's the interesting thing about that because i was on RogerEbert.com a little bit looking at anything i could find for carpenter i couldn't find a review for him on this movie no i couldn't either i would imagine i mean i'm sure he reviewed it at some point and i I think he probably would have liked it i mean his politics certainly were in alignment with this movie's politics and he never minded sort of a heavy-handed message movie which is what this is so i gotta imagine this was probably one of his favorite carpenter films but i I guess we can't ask him unfortunately He, he he basically was a big fan of assault on precinct 13 halloween and then like Escape from L.A. He loves Escape from L.A. And um, I mean, he did not give favorable favorable reviews to Big Trouble, to Prince of Darkness, um, even Escape from New York. He was pretty tough on. Yeah, Christine. He liked. He liked Christine a lot. Hmm. So I don't know, but I, but when I was looking at it overall, because I also found it funny, he gave, he gave a really positive review to Ghosts of Mars. Um, it's funny. It's like the most of the movies that he favored were the ones that were the ones that critically got like the lowest scores from other reviewers, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Well, Ebert was kind of a contrarian. Like he was the one critic that gave a positive review to Geely when that came out. So, 
you know. Shut up. Yeah, every once in a while he would. Uh, I still haven't seen that movie. I've kind of always. I've never seen it. it either, and I never will. Our, our mutual friend Brian Verderosa says it's very good, and uh, and that people should see it, and and it gets a bum rap. But again, another wow. discussion for another day. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just get these few like little comedic satirical scenes to end the movie. It ends with a sex scene, which is uh, a weird thing. We don't see a lot of sex in Carpenter movies, and yet there's a fairly explicit scene at the end of this movie, and there's a, a woman on top and the a guy on the bed and she looks down at him and he not only has the alien face uh, i guess it's that stunt coordinator guy you were talking about um but yes. also his body is like kind of purple and green like he's got the alien skin because he's he's shirtless he's naked i guess so we get to see like what the aliens look uh topless in that scene too and then we just immediately cut to credits yep that's correct <laughs> which is kind of funny uh, in itself yeah, I wanted to say one thing after listening to our last episode that I kind of want to change my opinion on. I always thought, and I still feel this way a little bit, but only minutely compared to how I felt last time, that the score to this movie didn't fit as well as it does in some of his other movies. And I found that on this last viewing, uh, really enjoying a lot of the placement of the music in this movie. I, I noticed, because I always think, right, about the... Uh, you know, the electric piano and the harmonica and that kind of swingy, jazzy feel to, to, the, to the film. But there are some really, during some of the raid sequences and some of the action sequences, there's some really, like, militaristic, like, drumming going on and a little bit more just darker and intense music happening that, for some reason, was overshadowed by, like, the main theme for me uh i enjoyed the music uh, like a lot more this last time i watched it yeah i actually did too i mean not so much for, i didn't really notice that but uh on my next viewing i will keep an ear open for that but i was thinking about like that sequence we were just talking about where frank and nada kind of go on the run together and they check into this flop house hotel and there's this moment of real desperation um that's where as you were saying rowdy rowdy piper has this kind of maybe his most emotive scene in the movie and kind of the odds are stacked against these guys and um i I think the score works really well there right like this sort of despair and this weariness like not has been on the run like for a whole week at this point and it's kind of just at the end of his rope and he basically has seen the apocalypse and nobody else is seeing it i think that sort of slow kind of almost mournful jazz music kind of works there also right yep. it's it's the blues and that is when they are at their lowest point and when they're kind of not knowing what to do and and how to proceed like on the last episode I think I was saying it works really well in the first part of the movie where we get these kind of down on their luck characters just kind of going through life in a, a slow kind of depressed sort of haze. Um, the blues works really well for that. And we kind of almost come back to that. And the score kind of comes back to that, too. So, uh, you know, still not my favorite. Still doesn't get me amped up the way like the Escape from New York soundtrack does. But I do think it fits. And again, it's just kind of an interesting choice for a, a sci-fi action comedy to have a score like that. I mean, that's uh, it's definitely one of those choices where if this were a big studio kind of movie, you know, they'd get like a James Newton Howard. They'd get like some kind of more bombastic, more blockbuster sort of Hollywood composer to really amp up those scenes. And, uh, and Carpenter, given sort of the creative control that he had here, was just like, nope, not going to do that. Yeah. God, I, it's, it's tough because... In, in my opinion, as much as I love the score to Escape from New York and even the, the zaniness and craziness of like Big Trouble in Little China, The Fog, man, is really that movie 
as as good even as good as Halloween is, I dare I say it, I think the fog might be my favorite score he's ever done. It is just unbelievable and really you know in, i think enhances that picture quite a bit and that's the reason the only reason why i brought it up is because i think in some of his movies that don't have as much context to them or like as deep of a story the music really helps elevate the picture i think in this movie there's just so much like there's just so much conceptual stuff going on that the music just kind of complements it rather than elevates it, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely not his showiest or flashiest score. Uh, Prince of right. Darkness is one of them, right? Like, Prince of Darkness is that sort of bombastic, like, you know, it's yeah. got the church organ and it kind of just blasts at you during these <laughs> horror scenes. And I really like that. I mean, I think that suits just the the craziness and over-the-topness of that movie very well. But yeah, this is one of the, the more subtle ones and it, it kind of almost fades into the background a lot uh, in this film and it's just it's it's the outlier certainly it, uh, style wise but yeah I, I think it definitely is it's an interesting choice that I think works more often than it doesn't well listen Nick I think we've covered this movie pretty in pretty much in in full detail we went all out right like we're coming back uh, after a while here <laughs> and I think we ended up unexpectedly doing a supersized episode here this is like the rowdy Roddy Piper Keith David fight scene of podcasts I feel like like we just kept going and going and going and maybe we should have ended a long time ago but uh but yeah i i I think i liked this movie uh more and more i mean it it had been a while since i saw it before the last time before the last episode and then i watched it again just recently before i recorded this one and uh and it's kind of grown on me even more i mean it's it's still top half but not one of my favorite carpenter films but uh i don't know i mean uh, like i said the last time there's just a lot to talk about there's a lot of silly things to talk about there's a lot of serious things to talk about and um i don't know i'm uh, i'm glad i watched it again and i'm glad we had the chance to talk about it again absolutely now and uh to our audience out there we do apologize for the delay in getting this episode out uh life happens but we can assure you that we are not going anywhere and we are going to keep shipping away at this massive body of work from the man himself, John Carpenter. Uh, Nick, did you want to maybe tease the next episode or tell them what, what our idea is? Because as we discussed last time, before we go into the 90s, we kind of want to rewind and cover some of the side projects and screenplays and earlier stuff that Carpenter did. Yeah, so we are still doing Carpenter in a chronological way, but we are like just about at the halfway point. We did the 70s and the 80s. We've got the 90s and and the few films from the 2000s to go. So we thought kind of this would be a nice halfway point to go back and cover some of the early stuff and some of the more tangential stuff um, because we've been strictly sticking to films that Carpenter directed. Actually, we've been sticking to feature films that Carpenter directed. So our next episode, we're going to go back and take a look at his short film, Captain Voyeur. And we're also going to look at the film that he wrote that won a student Oscar, a student Academy Award for him, which was The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. So uh, we're taking it way back to the pre-Dark Star era. And then also there's some films along the way that Carpenter wrote, produced, things like that. And we're going to pepper those in. We're not necessarily going to do all of those all at once, but we do want to go back and talk about The Eyes of Laura Mars, which is uh, one of the films that Carpenter Carpenter did the screenplay for that uh, he didn't end up directing. Black Moon Rising, a film from the 80s that I'm just fascinated by that I've always wanted to see. And then we might hit some of the other stuff along the way, like Halloween 2 and Halloween 3. Uh, We will, as we move along, we'll talk about things like body bags and 
masters of horror and the things that are not exactly feature films. So we don't want to let a, a good thing get away from us, right? Like we could just plow through, finish all the Carpenter films and be done with the show. But, uh, you know, we've been getting a great response for it and we really like talking to all of you about it. We love seeing these movies. And when else would we be watching like The Eyes of Laura Mars, right? I know. And uh, a friend of mine just tipped me off that it was just recently released on Blu-ray. So I think I might splurge and just for the just to take one for the team for this show, I might buy it unseen uh, <laughs> if it has a, if it has a decent amount of bonus material on there. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd be interested to see how involved Carpenter is in any of that stuff. Um, also, Chris, you were mentioning we might take a look at some of the soundtrack albums. So we've talked about the scores of the films just in our discussions of the films. And we've talked about the compilations like the anthology compilation. But we might go back and actually talk about some of the full on soundtrack albums for movies like Escape from New York and Halloween and things like that. So, um, uh, yes, I, I guess the best thing I can say is we've got a little bit of an open ended. The next few episodes are uh, are not 100 percent decided, except for the next one. We're going to do those shorts next. Um, and then eventually we will get back to Carpenter's 90s filmmaking period. We're not stalling. We do want to see Memoirs of an Invisible Man and talk about that movie. We're not just trying to put that off as far off into the future as possible. But we thought we'd go back now. This would be a good point to um, talk about some other things that are important to the overall we saw, uh, Carpenter did you see, we got. We got a comment on Facebook about Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and I thought that was so cool. Yeah, I mean, um, that movie's got its fans, and uh, I, I, I would yeah. not be surprised if I end up being one of them. I'm a huge Chevy Chase fan, so... Who knows? That could end up being in my top three. Probably not, though. Um, but yeah, let us know what you want to hear about and uh, and what else you would like us to do on the show. If you want to get a hold of us, again, we love receiving emails. We love talking to our listeners. You can get a hold of us by email at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at 13precinct. That is at 13precinct. Facebook.com slash 13precinct. And our website where you can download all of our episodes. Please subscribe to the show. Leave us a review. That would be really helpful. We'd uh, love to get some feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts from. Our website is precinct13.simplecast.com. With that, uh, this has been a knockdown, drag out alleyway fight, and I think it's time to put the glasses on. What do you say, Chris? I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right. We will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about the very, very early work of John Carpenter. We'll see you then. 